You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. This is a reading of a collection of lectures by Rudolf Steiner entitled Color. This is part two of that book, which is entitled Supplementary Lectures from Other Cycles. And this is lecture four, given in Dornach on the 26th of July, 1914, entitled The Creative World of Color. Let us continue with our studies of artistic subjects. These can be of assistance to the way of thinking that has to permeate all the work we have to do here. This work is still in its primitive beginnings, yet if we want to accompany it with the right thoughts, it is important to review some impressions of mankind's artistic achievements and the way these are connected with the cultural life of humanity. Hermann Grimm, the talented art connoisseur of the 19th century, made a rather radical-sounding statement with regard to Goethe. He prophesied when the time would come in which people would really understand Goethe's essential qualities. He set this date as the year 2000. This is quite a long time, isn't it, before mankind will have come to the point of understanding the essence of Goethe. And we do not feel inclined to contradict this radical statement, especially in the light of present times. For what does Hermann Grimm judge to be Goethe's prime quality? Not the fact that Goethe was a poet and created one or another particular work of art, but that he put his full humanity into all that he created and that this was the basis of all his individual creations. We can certainly say that our time is very far away from an understanding of the kind of full humanity that lived in Goethe. Obviously, I am not putting the blame yet again on science's specialized method of observation. From one point of view, this specialized method of observation is a certain necessity. But the way we specialize in our lives is far more incisive than the way we specialize in science. Specializing in life means that people engrossed in different areas of thought and feeling gradually understand one another less and less. And everybody is more or less a specialist these days. But we encounter this specialist attitude particularly strongly when we consider the way art is developing. This is why a reuniting of all the various branches of cultural life has to take place as I have pointed out in previous lectures, though the beginnings made in this direction can only be primitive as yet. And it is this unity of the life of culture that will produce artistic form. We do not need to look very far to prove it. The best way to explain this is probably by taking something that is right on our doorstep. So I shall mention a very small instance of the completely foolish and often absurd attacks on our spiritual movement 
which are so numerous nowadays. When people want to slander us in the eyes of the world, and all they say is sheer invention, they find it so easy to laugh at the way we have painted our premises to suit our way of thinking. They blame us for giving our meeting rooms colored walls, and they have made a lot of the eccentricity of our Gertianum building and say that for real theosophy it is totally unnecessary to have it. In fact, in certain circles, real theosophy is considered to be a psychic hodgepodge of all manner of vague feelings that wallow in the fact that the soul is capable of developing a higher ego, but really only egotistic feelings are meant. And because they think of it as a hodgepodge of vague dreams, they see no sense in a spiritual movement being brought to expression in outer form even though we admit to this being elementary and primitive. In these circles they think we can talk anywhere about this fantasizing on the higher ego in man. So why all this fuss about expressing these in all kinds of strange forms? Now, we cannot expect that people who throw out reproaches of this sort can really think. In fact, there are very few people nowadays of whom you can expect this. All the same, we must get certain points absolutely clear so that we can at least give ourselves the proper answers to the questions. I should like to draw your attention to an artist who had a remarkable gift for drawing and painting and who lived at the end of the 18th century, Karstens. I have no intention of evaluating Karstens' art nor showing you any of his pictures or telling you his biography. I wish merely to point out that even if not for painting, Karstens had a strong talent for drawing. If we look into what motivated Karstens and look at his artistic aspirations, we can see to a certain extent what, in his particular case, was lacking. He wanted to use his brush to draw ideas and incorporate them in pictures, yet he was not in the same position as a Raphael or a Leonardo or Dante. To give an example from the realm of poetry, Raphael, Leonardo, and Dante lived in an age when culture was alive and full of content and really encompassed the life of the human soul. When Raphael painted Madonnas, there was a deeper reason for this. The essence of the Madonna lived in human hearts and souls and meant, in the noblest sense, something came from the soul of the masses that could join with these artistic creations. When Dante led the human soul up to spiritual realms, his subject matter only needed to be taken from what reverberated to a certain extent in every human soul. We could say that these artists had the substance of the current culture within their own souls. Take any work of science of that time, however, out of the way it may let me see, read that again. Take any work of science at that time, however out of the way it may have been, and you will find it saturated with living threads that connected it to what was alive in everyone, even people of the humblest social stratum. The learned men within the cultural circles out of which Raphael created his Madonnas were thoroughly familiar with the idea of the Madonna 
and this idea was alive in them. Works of art were therefore like an expression of cultural life in general, and this is what occurred again in the individual Goethe in a way that corresponded to the turn of the 18th to 19th century. It is that this is so little understood in our time that caused Hermann Grimm to set the year 2000 as the time when an understanding for it will dawn again. Let us return to Karstens. He takes Homer's title Iliad and expresses the events and the forms of his drawings. Just think what a different relationship there was in the 18th century and the beginning of the 19th century to the figures of Homer that the kind of relationship Raphael had to the Madonna figures and the other motifs of that age. One can say that in the greatest art epochs, what they took as content for their art was an obvious choice because it flowed from the innermost stirrings of everyone's hearts. In the 19th century a time began when the artist had to start searching for the content for his creations. He soon became a kind of cultural hermit who was only concerned with himself, and we are led to ask what his own particular relationship is to the forms and figures he depicts. We could go through the history of 19th century art and look at it from this point of view. And this is how it came about that our present-day relationship to art arose, a relationship that is not merely cool, but actually cold. Think of a person in a modern city today going through a picture gallery or exhibition. In actual fact, he does not meet with anything that stirs his feelings and with which he is intimately connected. But to put it radically, he meets a pack of riddles which he can only solve if he goes into the particular relationship the artist has to nature or to anything else. We are faced with one individual riddle or problem after another. And the significant thing is that while we think we are solving artistic problems that are in fact highly inartistic problems because they are psychological problems, problems as to how the artist regards nature or world conceptual problems and things of that sort, which play no part at all when we consider the great epochs of art, What mattered in those epochs were real questions of art, real aesthetic questions, and these applied to the viewer as well, because the concern of the artist was how it should be done, not what he should do, because the what was merely the substance he was steeped in. You could say that Our artists are no longer artists, but people who observe the world from a particular point of view and what they put into form is what their own special temperament leads them to notice. So these are psychological problems of world outlook and problems of how to explain history and so on. But the essential aspect of how the work is done, the work of art is done, has almost been lost in our time. People frequently do not have the heart to study how it is done. As we have briefly mentioned, it is our thoroughly theoretical outlook that is largely to blame. However, practical people have become in the realm of industry, technology and business relations, 
they are eminently theoretical when it comes to the way they envisage the world. It is not only difficult to create a bridge between the way science thinks about the world and the world conception of the artist, but very few people feel the need of it. And words like this quotation from Goethe, quote, Art is the manifestation of secret laws of nature, which, without art, could never come to expression, close quote, are totally unintelligible to our times, even though there may be individuals who imagine they understand them. For our modern age clings to the most external and abstract of natural laws, those which are closest to mathematics, to the most abstract element of mathematics, and will not recognize any departure into a reality that extends beyond abstract mathematics or things or things that are constructed on abstract mathematical lines. Therefore, it is no wonder that our age has actually lost that living element of soul which is sensitive to the kind of substantiality that is at work in world processes and which has to be present if art is to arise. Art will never arise out of scientific concepts nor out of abstract theosophical concepts, at least nothing but empty allegory and formal symbolism. The thoughts the modern world has about the world in, are in themselves inartistic and actually aspire to be so. Think of the colors and what our scientific outlook has made of them. Vibrations of the most abstract part of matter, the ether. Ether vibrations of so-and-so many wavelengths and so on. Just imagine how far removed the waves of vibrating ether envisaged by our present-day science are from the living quality of color. How could it be otherwise than that we forget altogether to pay any attention to the life and essential quality of color? At the end of our last gathering we pointed out that the element of color is fundamentally flowing and alive and that our soul life lives in it. And I said that a time will come when we shall again recognize the living connection between the flowing world of color and the colored objects and creatures around us. People find this difficult because having to develop their ego during earth evolution Human beings have, as it were, ascended out of this flowing sea of color to the level of clear self-awareness. With his ego, man raises himself out of the flowing ocean of color in which the animal world is still fully immersed. And if an animal has green, brown, red, black or white feathers or fur, it is because of its whole relationship to the flowing sea of color. Just as we look at objects with our ego, an animal looks at them with his astral body, and into this astral body flow the forces of the animal's group soul. It is nonsense to imagine that animals, even the higher ones, see the world as human beings do. But the truth of this is totally unintelligible to present-day man. Modern man imagines that if he is in the presence of a horse, the horse sees him in exactly the same way as he sees the horse. What is more natural for modern man to believe 
than that because the horse has eyes, it sees him in the same way as he sees the horse. Yet this is absolute nonsense. For horses would not see us without being clairvoyant any more than we would see angels without being clairvoyant. For horses see us as spiritual, not as physical beings. And only because they have a certain kind of clairvoyance do we appear to them as beings of an angelic nature. The part of us they see is quite different from the part of them we see. Our human configuration gives us a very ghost-like appearance even to the higher animals. If the animals could talk, not the kind of language we put into their mouths, but their own real language, it would be clear to us that it would never occur to an animal to think of us as beings of a similar nature to themselves, but as ghost-like beings of a higher level. They may regard their own bodies as consisting of flesh and blood, but they certainly do not regard human beings as being like that. If one says this today, it sounds absolute nonsense to modern brains, of course, because modern times are so far away from the truth. Due to the kind of relationship that exists between an animal's astral body and the group soul, sensitivity to the living creativity of color streams into an animal. And in the same way as our hand reaches out to take hold of an object we long to have, the animal's whole organism is affected by the living creativity of color which flows straight in and colors its feathers or fur. As I have said before, the modern age cannot even grasp why a polar bear is white. The color results from his environment, and the fact that he whitens himself means the same thing on a different level as when a human being reaches out and picks a rose he craves for. The polar bear's life of instinct responds to the living creativity in his environment and he, quote, sucks in the white, close quote. This living participation in color has been submerged in human beings to the extent that they have begun to develop their ego. We would never have been capable of ego development if we had remained as united with the living sea of color that on seeing, say, a red color, a rosy dawn, for example, it would have aroused in us the urge to transfer the dawn colors in a creative, imaginative way to parts of our skin. This still happened during the ancient moon evolution. When looking at a natural play of color, like the sunrise, had such an effect on man as he was then, that its reflection appeared in his own pigmentation, in that the color permeated his being and then revealed itself externally in certain parts of his body. Yet during earth evolution man had to lose this state of living with his body within the flowing sea of color so that he might develop in his ego his own world outlook. In his constitution he had to become neutral with respect to this flowing sea of color. The color of our skin in the temperate zones is essentially the expression of our ego and shows absolute neutrality toward the waves of flowing color outside us, and we have it as a result of our ascent 
out of that color sea. But if we think of even the most elementary of spiritual scientific truths, they will remind us that it is man's task to find his way back again. Our physical body, etheric body and astral body evolved during the Saturn, Sun and Moon evolution and our ego during the Earth evolution. Human beings must find the way to spiritualize the astral body again and permeate it with ego activity. And in doing so we must find the moving waves of color again out of which we emerged for the sake of developing our ego and look about us and take stock of our surroundings as a swimmer would do when he steps ashore. We are really already living in a time when we must begin to immerse ourselves in the spiritual activity at work in natural forces, that is to say in the spiritual forces behind nature, if we are not to lose all contact with the world. We must again find the way to live with colors, to experience their inner life, and not just look at them and paint with them externally. It will not help from the point of view of painting merely to study the play of colors by staring at them. The only way to enter with our whole souls into the way red or blue moves and to feel the color's living quality that again. The only way is to enter with our whole souls into the way red or blue moves and to feel the color's living quality. We must bring to life what is in the color, not by practicing color symbolism, which is the worst possible thing, but by actually discovering what is in color in the same way as the power of laughter is in someone who laughs. However, having as it were, risen with our egos out of this flowing world of color, we must find our way back into it again. If we cannot get beyond the usual way of experiencing red and blue as just two separate surfaces, and there was a drawing done, we shall never advance to a living participation in the actual element of color. We shall do this even less, of course, if we explain it intellectually and feel that red represents one symbol and blue another. That is even less likely to lead to an experience of the nature of color. The essential thing is to know how to open our souls to what speaks to us out of color. Then, when we encounter red, we shall feel it as something aggressive that attacks us. Wherever there is red, it comes out and comes toward us. If all the ladies were to wear red and walk in the street like that, anyone sensitive to red would imagine that purely because of their clothes the ladies all wanted to attack him. Red has something aggressive about it, a quality that comes toward us. Blue has a quality of going away and leaving us, and we watch it with a certain melancholy, even perhaps with longing. How far removed we have become at present from such a living understanding of color can be seen in the following case, which I have mentioned before. The excellent artist Hildebrandt expressly emphasized that color is only on the surface and that there is nothing beyond color and surface, that color is different from form, which among other things can reproduce distances. Yet color gives us 
even more than distances. And the fact that even an artist like Hildebrand does not feel this is a striking symptom of the whole way in which present times observe things. It is impossible to penetrate the living nature of color if we cannot go from a state of rest directly into movement. If it is not immediately obvious that this red disc is coming toward us and the blue one going away, that they are moving in opposite directions. And you keep on making further discoveries if you study this living aspect of color. You come to the point where you know that if, for instance, you had two colored balls of this kind, you would not possibly imagine that the two balls were keeping quite still, not if you believe in colors. It would be the death of living feeling to imagine such a thing. Because if one has living feeling, one senses immediately that the red and the blue ball are turning around one another, one towards the viewer and the other away from him. Where there is red painted on the figure, it is in such contrast to what is painted blue that through the colors themselves the figures are given life and movement. Forms are taken hold of by the living world when they shine with color. Forms by themselves are, of course, stationary. They are motionless and stay where they are. But the moment the form has color, the inner movement of the color sets the form in motion and the world's ripples, spiritual ripples, pass through it. If you color a form, you immediately give it a soul quality of a universal kind because the color belongs to more than just the form. The color, the individual form is given, links it up with its surroundings. In fact, it links it altogether to the world. You could say that when you color a form, you should feel that what you are doing to the form is ensouling it. You are breathing soul into dead form when you give it color. You'll need to get a little closer to this living inner movement of colors and you will feel as if you were not standing directly in front of them, but slightly above or below them, as though the color were coming alive in itself. Someone who just stares at colors abstractly and does not experience them livingly can look at a red ball moving around a blue one without feeling the need to change this movement in any way. He may be a great mathematician or metaphysician, but he does but he just does not know how to share the life of color. And for him, the color goes from one place to another like something dead. It does not do this in reality, not if you share its life. Color radiates. It changes within itself. And the color red, when it moves and advances toward you, has in front of it a kind of orange aura, yellow aura, green aura. And when blue moves, it will bring other shades along with it. Unfortunately, I cannot draw this properly because the colors are not here. It is a kind of color play, and this is what happens when you share the life of colors, and the red seems to attack you enough to make you want to escape from it, and the blue seems to withdraw so that you follow it with longing. If you can directly experience red and blue moving and coming alive, as I have described, you would really have entered the surging flow of colors. And as in a whirlwind, you would almost simultaneously 
Feel all the soul experiences of attack and longing, fleeing and devotional prayer, passing through you one after another. And if you were to make a picture with these colors, on a form structure, in an artistic way, of course, the form structure, which as such is motionless, would be caught up in movement. Imagine you had a form structure and you painted this on it. Whilst the rest of the form remained motionless, this would become a living interweaving, which was not only part of the structure, but also part of the force and movement around the structure. By ensouling it, you raise the structure above its state of immobility, its mere structural character. The world's elemental forces ought to paint something like this and set it in the world. For all the power of longing man should acquire should be expressed in blue. This ought to be built into the structure of man's head, and all that is expressed in red could be in man's form and stream up from the organism to the brain. Both these streams are actively engaged in man's brain structure. Outside, the world, that which man longs for and which perpetually gets inundated by what rises up out of his own body. In the daytime, what is in the blue half flows more strongly than what is in the red and yellow half. At night it is the other way round within man's physical organism. And a genuine image of this is what we usually call the two-petaled lotus flower, which really is as mobile and colorful as this. And nobody will rightly understand the creative element in the world of forms, the upper part of the human head, unless we can tap this play of colors, which is hidden where man is concerned. Art must endeavor to penetrate again into elemental life. Art has spent long enough merely observing and studying nature and trying to solve nature's riddles by reproducing in another form what can be seen by penetrating into nature. Yet what lives in the elements is still something dead to modern art. The air is dead and water is dead and so is light, the way it is painted nowadays. The kind of forms presented by modern sculpture are also dead. Art will arise anew when man learns how to enter into elemental life with his innermost soul. People may argue that this ought not to be done, but this argument is only prompted by laziness. Human beings will either live their way with full humanity into the forces of the elements and accept the soul and spirit in the creation's around them, or art will become more and more the product of individual hermits, in which case we might come across things of considerable interest with regard to the psychology of individuals, but art would never give us the achievements which only art can give. We are speaking very much of future times when we say things like this. But what must happen is that we go to meet the future with eyes that have acquired insight through spiritual science. Otherwise we shall only be able to see a dead and dying future ahead of us. This is why we must seek to have an inner connection between all our work with forms and colors and our spiritual knowledge, which moves us to the innermost depths of our souls and is alive in us in spirit. Then we shall be like Raphael, 
who could become the artist of the Madonna because the Madonnas were alive in him, just as they were also alive in the scholars, the farmers, and the craftsmen of his time. That is how he became the real artist of the Madonnas. Not until we succeed in bringing the life of our world conception into our forms, not as abstract forms or dead knowledge, but livingly and purely artistically as living soul substance without any symbolism or allegory, not until then shall we have any idea of what is meant by the kind of art I have just been describing. Therefore there must be unity between what is created externally and what there is in man's innermost soul, as was the case with Goethe, due to some special karma. Bridges must be built between what are still abstract ideas of spiritual science and what flows from our hands, our chisel, or our brush. Our civilization and culture, which is abstract and for the most part superficial, is a hindrance at the moment to the creation of such bridges and prevents creations from coming alive. This explains the unfounded belief that spiritual knowledge could be the death of art. It has certainly killed many a thing in a number of people, like the inclination to make allegories and symbols and to keep asking, quote, what is the meaning of this and what is the meaning of that, close quote. I have already stressed that one should not keep asking what things mean. Just as there is no sense in asking what the meaning of the larynx is, for it is the living organ of speech, Similarly, we must learn to see that what lives in the forms and colors is the living organ of the spiritual world. Until we have thoroughly overcome the habit of inquiring in terms of symbols and allegories and of interpreting myths and legends allegorically and symbolically and start sensing the breath of the spirit that weaves throughout the cosmos and feel its life in the figures of myths and fairy tales, until we do this, we shall not have attained real spiritual knowledge. Yet we have to make a start. It will be imperfect, and no one should think that we mistake mere beginnings for perfection. But the objection people are making about our spiritual movement at present is just as silly as previous objections, namely that what we are trying to carry out with our Gertianum building has no connection with our spiritual movement. We know the reasons for their argument as well as they do. That we could pretend there is a connection between all that twaddle about higher ego and all that raving about deification of the human soul and the external forms is no news to us. And we know, too, of course, that the study of spiritual science on a conceptual level can be done anywhere but we feel that over and above the intellectual cultivation of spiritual science, when spiritual science enters livingly into human souls, it requires a different setting from the kind our dying civilization can offer. And we certainly do not need the outside world to tell us the platitude that spiritual science can be studied intellectually in any rooms other than those which have come alive with our forms. We must take the real ideal of spiritual science more seriously and ever more seriously. We have a long way to go, 
until we shall feel the full earnestness, the full motivating power of our spiritual ideals in our souls. It is easy to talk about spiritual science and its expression in the external world without conveying its real essence. When you see people making the worst possible attacks on our spiritual movement and the way these hail down upon us, you have a strange feeling. When you read of these attacks, well, if you are in full possession of your wits, you begin to wonder what they are actually describing. They are the most fantastic things. They have not the slightest thing to do with us. And these are the things they are attacking. There is so little appreciation of a new spiritual element that people make a caricature of it which does not in the least resemble it, then talk about this false caricature and attack it. There are even individuals who imagine they should refute stuff like this. One can turn on them, but one cannot refute something they have invented and which has no resemblance to what they wish to describe. We must take heed of how little sense for truth and truthfulness is at the bottom of things like this. For if we pay attention to this aspect, it will strengthen our grasp of spiritual science, both in ourselves and in the way we should bring it to life in the material world. People's attitudes to spiritual science at the present time shows that the world has become neither more tolerant nor more understanding. Perhaps doing studies like this one on color is the best way of celebrating our inner union with spiritual science. For when we ourselves experience the life of color, we step out of our own skins and take part in cosmic life. Color is the sole element of nature and of the whole cosmos, soul spelled S-O-U-L, and we have a share in this soul element when we experience color. I wanted to tell you about things like this today so that next time we can go further into the nature of the world of color and of painting. It was necessary to include in these discussions references to the attacks now being made on us from all sides, attacks made by a world that at bottom can really understand nothing at all about our spiritual scientific movement. One can but hope that the people in our movement will find that by deepening themselves in every direction, our spiritual movement enables them to find their bearings with regard to a fact that is really symptomatic of our time, namely an upsurge of untruthfulness in dealing with a spiritual approach to life. It will certainly not be our fault if our spiritual movement is cut off from the world as though we all wanted to be hermits. People are welcome to have as much of it as they wish. But if they want to understand the direction in which we are going, they will have to grasp the unifying element in man's whole being, and that every detail of human endeavor springs from man's being as a whole. I am not saying this altogether as an attack on present times. I say it with a certain sadness, because we see that the more our movement spreads, the more malicious our opponents become. Not consciously, perhaps, but in a more or less unconscious way they are really malicious. And because people have not yet sufficiently learned, even in our circles, how to judge these things, nor how to stand up for the fact that our movement intends to start something new, these intentions will certainly develop into something more than this. Even to ourselves the Gertianum 
can only mean a first beginning. People will follow on. Who can do more in this direction? Even if it is not until the time Hermann Grimm predicted Goethe would be fully understood. A certain modesty is needed in order to understand a statement like that, and our present intellectual culture has a lack of this. Spiritual science is very suited to teach us both modesty and at the same time earnestness. All that is being said against our spiritual movement, just now when the world is beginning to see something of it, makes a sorry impression. As long as our work took place purely on an ideal level, there was nothing to be seen. But now that people can see something they do not understand, they start sounding their whole register of discordant notes, and this will get worse and worse. But let us be clear about this. Although we shall feel a certain sadness, we shall grow stronger in defense of what we are receiving, not only as conviction, but as life. Etheric life will fill our hearts and souls, and what will then live in us will be more than the kind of theoretical conviction that is the pride of modern times. Those who acquire this motivating power will at the same time be filled with assurance that the roots of our world and of our human existence will certainly support us if they are sought for in the Spirit. Sometimes we need more of this assurance than at others. And if we speak of sadness with regard to what we feel about outside opinion, then this mood of sadness must produce the kind of strength which I have described as having its source in the knowledge that man's life springs from the Spirit, and that the Spirit will lead men out of whatsoever disharmony causes him sadness. This mood of strength will be a real force. Today, perhaps, we have had to speak about spiritual affairs with even greater sadness than that which we feel regarding the discrepancy which exists between the intentions of our spiritual movement and the public's opinion of it. Yet the world's disharmonies will take a different course once humanity realizes what can be kindled in human hearts by the spiritual light our spiritual science wishes to bring. The sadness we feel with regard to our movement is very small compared to the sadness we feel for what is happening to the destinies of Europe. Although my words have been spoken out of this sadness, they are also said with a living conviction that whatever painful happenings the people of Europe have to face now or in days to come, we can be assured that the Spirit will lead man victoriously through them all. Indeed, in these sad and serious days, it is not only permissible for us to speak of the holy matters of spiritual science, it is essential that we do so, for we believe that however small the light of spiritual science seems today, it will become greater and greater and brighter and brighter and be a beacon of peace, love and harmony among men. These are serious words, but the kind of words which justify our concentrating on spiritual science and putting all our hearts and souls into it at such a time when these serious events are encroaching upon us. The end of Lecture 4